What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's not really about the cornrows. It's not about the Native American headdress. It's about everything that happened underneath the cornrows and the headdress for the last 500 years, right? Yeah. Well... And that's not to say you shouldn't wear cornrows. That's not to say you shouldn't wear a headdress. Acknowledge is. How does one acknowledge correctly? Don't act like it didn't exist. Don't act like what you're doing is some proprietary new thing that you've come up with. Hey, all, and welcome back to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and on today's episode, our guest is comedian and writer Moshe Kasher. As you just heard from that clip from his new Comedy Central show, Problematic, we'll be diving into some complex issues around identity and cultural appropriation from his perspective as a white guy. If you're not familiar with Moshe, he spent a few years co-hosting The Champs, a really fascinating podcast in which he and Neil Brennan, the co-creator of The Chappelle Show, got an array of mostly black celebrities to riff on their life, work, and personal struggles. But before that, I wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who came out to our very first live show with Francesca Ramsey last week. If you missed it, be sure to check out the recorded version as our previous episode. I had a blast, the audience was great, and hopefully we'll be doing it again very, very soon. Up next, we're going to take some time to recognize an underappreciated show via one of my great colleagues, Kristen Meinzer. She's got some thoughts on why a certain reality show does an impressive job of showcasing different, underseen walks of life. Check it out. So I'm very excited to have in our studio today, Kristen Meinzer. Welcome. So happy to be here. I love your show. Oh, great. Thank you. (laughs) I I mean, I love you. You're awesome. You are one of our producers at Panoply, and you also co-host a new show, a new podcast called By the Book. Yes. My friend Jolenta and I co-host that show, and it's essentially a reality show in audio form where... We live strictly by the rules of a different self-help book in each episode. Awesome. So the pilot is out already, so everyone should check it out. And you're working on more episodes right now, right? That's correct. In the pilot episode, we lived the secret <laughs> and and lived to tell about it. Oh, God. That, that's, the, that's the crazy book that, like, Oprah, like, <laughs> hawked a, a long time ago, right? Yes, and I love Oprah so much, but that book has a lot of interesting theories in it and pseudoscience. Yes. (laughs) So today on our recognized segment, we are going to talk about what? We're going to talk about my extreme love for the Great British Bake Off, as it's called in England. And in the States, it's actually called the Great British Baking Show because Pillsbury owns the words Bake Off. So they had to change the title in the U.S. Seriously? Yeah. And so it's called the Great British Baking Show Mm -hmm. um, when it's distributed here. And it's on public television. And then they made a relaunched version of it with not British bakers, but with American contestants. Mm. 
around the holidays, and that was on ABC. And it just came out onto Netflix a couple months ago, and cool. I got obsessed, and I watched the whole thing. I, I mean, I just love all the great British baking shows. It's all the diversity of England, but this time in the American version, it's all the diversity of America in one show. We see Indian Americans. We see uh, Chinese Americans. We don't get to see Chinese Americans or Indian Americans very often on TV. Right. I mean, if you asked your average American, name five celebrities who are Chinese American. Not Chinese, Chinese American. Mm, uh. And even somebody like you who's like, <laughs> a pop culture specialist. I'm asking you, can you name five, not even Chinese, I'll say Asian Americans. Oh, well, Asian American. Yeah. I mean, I, I could do, well, there's Kamal Nanjani. Um, you have Aziz Ansari, uh, Hasan Minhaj, um, uh, from, uh, from uh, Fresh fresh Off the Boat. Why do I always forget her name? See? Constance Wu. Ah! <laughs> See, and you're like a specialist and you're still pausing at moments to I be know. like, ah, ah. I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, terrible with names, but also I, your point is well taken that, yes, that is very much yeah. an issue. And is it, is it also like a class thing as well? Like, do you see you're seeing people who are not like necessarily wealthy um, or middle class or are these people from all walks of life yeah, in terms of and, like where they are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, both the British one and the American version. You have men who are construction workers by day, but then they come home and they just love to bake with their husbands. Or you have mm-hmm. somebody who... Uh, immigrated to England in their adult life and didn't even grow up in England. Mm -hmm. Uh, One very famous contestant in the British show, and I will not give any spoilers, Mm -hmm. she wore a headscarf and she was Muslim and she was in an arranged marriage and she became extremely famous. And some people have argued that she did did more to combat Islamophobia in Britain than any speeches that any politicians have made, just her appearance on the show. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so... In terms of not just seeing these people, but it sounds like we're also seeing them in it's not a negative depiction because you we have plenty of, you know, black American women on TV, especially in these reality shows like, you know, Real Housewives and all oh, that yeah. stuff where it's like not the most shining example of what we necessarily want to see. What do we learn about these characters? I mean, because they are sort of characters. Yes, they are. Reality, oh, yeah, but they're totally characters. characters. Like, what is it about their depiction that like makes that? makes you connect with them and makes you appreciate like what these shows are doing for them. So I think what's amazing is everybody is just depicted as normal. Mm. And what is their normal? For one guy, he's black, he's best friends with his grandma, and he sings in a choir. <laughs> and that's just normal. It's yeah. great. And everyone has a different version of normal, but all of the normals you can relate to. That is awesome. I, I've never watched any of those baking shows. I'm not really much of a cooking show person, so this is very enlightening. Oh, me neither. I'm not a cooking show person either, but there's something about these shows that just watching the ritual and the art and the science of them doing it, and nobody's mean on these shows. This isn't Mm. like those cooking channel ones, like, I'm not here to make friends. Yeah. Actually, everybody is there to make friends, and it's super clear that everybody just... Whenever someone gets eliminated, they all cry and hug. It's very emotional. I've cried watching the show. Mm. Now, do you have any suggestions for for folks like us who like who aren't really into them, but who might want to check it out? Like, should we start with the American version, or should we like just jump into the British one and then like just make our way through everything else? Start with the British one, okay. and after watching one or two seasons of the British one, then watch the American one. Mm-hmm. I, and the American one, unfortunately, did not do very well in the ratings, apparently. Um, And I don't really know why that is, because it still has Mary Berry as the head judge. She's a very famous uh, baker in England, and I think she's in her 
late 80s, possibly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she's Good fantastic. Yeah. yeah. But the American one, work your way, just, just get a taste first of the British one, one or two seasons, then watch the American one. And some of the characters on the American one are just, they're wonderful. My favorite character on the American one, her name's Jenny Dubowski. Hmm. And she's from the Midwest. She's from Chicago. She talks kind of like me. (laughs) Okay, bakers, you have one hour left. There's no time on how long I should bake this for, so I'll probably just guess for right now. All right. Oh, for heaven. I'm from the Midwest, and I just don't feel that we get to hear Midwestern voices very often. Hmm. And most of America is not on the West or East Coast, but most of the voices we get to hear are from the West or East Coast. And I think that's a huge part of diversity that's frequently left out. One other thing, people who are listening may not know that I'm Asian. And so um, one other thing about Jenny Dabowski, she's Latina, and she talks just like me. And I have to say, when I moved to New York after college, I would hear it all the time, like, I can't believe you talk like that. Why do you talk like that? You're Asian. And I would tell people, well, I'm from Minnesota, and this is how Minnesotans talk. And they're like, but you're Asian. And I heard that all the time. I'm like, well, how else am I supposed to talk? I'm from the Midwest. And they'd say, but you're Asian. And <laughs> so sorry. it's so horrible. Yeah. But I think that there's a perception on the coasts that Asian people only talk like immigrants. Right. Or that we only talk like we're from Queens, or maybe. Or California. Or from like, like the Valley. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah. not really sure. But yeah. um, but watching Jenny Dubowski on the American version of the Great British Baking Show is delightful because I get to see another underrepresented person, a Latina, who talks just like me. And I never get to see that. I cannot think of any other time I've watched a person of color with my accent on TV. Mm. Am I wrong? Maybe I have. I just can't think of any. I mean, there have definitely been shows that have been set in the Midwest with people of color, but I I feel like you don't usually hear... Like I think of um, Family Matters was set in Chicago, and, and they don't talk like don't, me at all. No, they don't talk. They don't. I don't hear the, like the Chicago or you know the yeah yeah. But I don't know. Black people sometimes can have. I like in the South. I I don't. I hear less difference between black people and white people. But I feel like in the Midwest there might be a little bit more of a a, a difference between the way they talk. Then I could be wrong, but there might be. But then I just. I mean. It's not completely absent. We all live together. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I can't count how many times I've like been on shows and podcasts and people think that I'm white and I'm like, because <laughs> they don't see me. They and make they- a lot of presumptions on how does a black person talk or exactly. with me, obviously, how does a white person talk? And I'm not a white person. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I don't I don't know if they know how an Asian person talks. Probably they talk like me because I was brought up where I was or you know, if I was from Louisiana, I'd probably talk very differently. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us and sharing your love for all of the great American slash British uh, bacon show or bake off, bake off bacon show incarnations. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aisha. So now on to my conversation with Moshe Kasher. We got into a lot. So let's just get into it. Well, thank you so much, Moshe, for joining me in the studio here today in Brooklyn. It's great to have you on. Nice to be here. Um, I mean, I've been a huge fan of The Champs. Uh, My boyfriend actually put me onto it a while ago, and I was sad when it recently ended. But, you know, I like what you guys do, and we'll get a little bit into that later on. Um, 
But first, we should probably address to our listeners. So you probably don't know this, but you are only the second straight white cis guy we've had on the show since we started. I'm honored. Who's the first? <laughs> well, Richard Spencer. <laughs> oh, not quite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this is a show in which we discuss, you know, film and TV from the perspective of, you know, people of color, women, LGBT. Um, and so our first one to sort of break that not not the spell or whatever we have going on here was actually Paul Haggis, uh, director of Crash. Oh sure, wow. Yeah, I'm in pretty good company. Yeah, well. Oh, you didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. It, it was around the twentieth and twentieth anniversary of Slade, and we were discussing like different different things. And and uh, Paul Haggis came up, and we had a very interesting conversation in which he, I would like to say, did not want to fully engage with. The movie that he created and the way in which he deals with racial politics. That's really interesting. So I feel like I know your work. I know the champs. I feel like it'll be a little bit different. It'll be a little more interesting. Let's find out. What if I get really defensive right now? Oh, we'll see. I mean, that still makes for for entertaining, you know, (laughs) podcast listening. I feel I honestly (laughs) didn't know that. And I got to say, I feel honored that 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 I made the cut. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I want to know how I made the cut, but I feel really good about it. Thank well, you. Thank well, you for having me. Well, I mean, part of the reason is because, you know, you are a white guy who deals with race quite often in what you do. And, you know, we often have this opinion, which I think is often correct, that white people, especially white guys, don't ever have to engage in racial politics and 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 those mm-hmm. types of things, but you do, um, and that's part of the reason why you're on today. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about sort of. First of all, let's just start off with how did you get to be this way? I know you grew up. <laughs> I know a little bit about your background. You grew up in Oakland, and and you know you interacted with people of color at an early age. Sure, uh, I was an uh, Oakland public school kid, so I didn't just interact with people of color. I was. Uh, I, I, I don't want to say surrounded, but I was certainly like one of very few white kids in every classroom I was ever in. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be my primary interaction with people of color is just growing up in that community. And this, by the way, is now this is a touchy subject, but pre-gentrification Oakland. You know, this yes. was this was before the the great the weirdest thing ever, and it's happening in every community. But this kind of like white flight now in reverse now in in oakland in the oakland area what's really interesting is there's there's literally white flight in reverse of course all white people are coming back to the city because it's like the cool place to live and we're we're coming in and and we will not take no for an answer but Mm -hmm. also black people i don't know if it's true here but the black community in oakland is moving to the suburbs slowly it's matriculating out to the suburbs which Mm -hmm. i think is like a really interesting bizarre kind of like bittersweet melancholy of like watching this literal reverse white flight happen. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's my personal interaction with with people of color is growing up in Oakland, the cool kids were all black. And so everybody, everybody in the Bay, and I know this is going to sound like nonsense to people, but it is true. If you find anybody that grew up in the East Bay in the time that I grew up in the East Bay, everybody was emulating and admiring specifically black culture, hip-hop culture, because that's what we grew up around. So everybody in the East Bay is that. Uh, Was this like, what, the 80s, 90s? Yeah, 80s and 90s. Yeah. So... Yes, you. Everyone was cool. All the black people were cool. Now, how did <laughs> that you... is what I was saying? All the black people were cool. Yes, <laughs> um, and we'll, uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but in terms of like 
your interaction with the like can you just give a little bit of background about like how you grew up um and then also sort of what your interactions were like with people of color sure. and sort of like who who were you admiring at that time um so okay well uh, <laughs> i feel like i'm in a landmine a minefield hey look it's okay <laughs> it's, it is okay. Hey, we're this, gonna... is, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> yeah. um but i grew up with two two disabled parents, I grew up with with a single mother in Oakland, California, on welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in in some weird way, I don't know why I'm bringing that up, <laughs> but I do feel like I'm putting it on as like a coat of defensive armor. But uh, so yeah, that that's my background. I grew up with uh, my parents are both deaf, and my mother left my father when I was like a year old and moved us to Oakland, and we were raised there, a single mom in college, welfare kids, latchkey kids. And my interaction with people of color, I mean, I, you know, the, really the conversation wasn't really about people of color at the time. It was really about the reality that I was living in. It was I was living in a majority black city and in, in public school systems that were majority black and to some extent Asian and Latino. But I would say primarily the primary dynamic was that classic American binary dynamic of black and white. Yeah. And in this weird way, uh, the black kids in in Oakland public schools, like I said, were like the primary social interactor. They were at the top of the social food chain. And uh, white, I would say, would be like, the you were sort of auto-nerded, you know what I'm saying? You mm. became like nerd by default. And uh, as I say in my book, like you had like a few choices when you were a white kid in, in public schools, at Oakland public schools at that time. You could try to become like anonymous and like try to disappear into and hope and then like jettison out into public school, into private schools in high school. You could become, you could try to uh, what would be, I guess, called appropriation at this point. But I don't even know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I'm talking about like these like real white boys that were like really down, like were from the hood and were fully integrated into black culture. Mm. Or you become what I became, which is like a juvenile delinquent other, which is like, well, look, those white boys are crazy. As I was saying, like one of the great moments of pride in my life was when somebody would look at me and go, that white boy crazy. And I'd be like, (laughs) oh, you have no idea. He, He truly is. So, but how were the were the black people categorized? Like I, I, yeah, I think yeah, in your book you just in, in your book you kind of describe the the black kids sort of they were all different type, kinds of things that there was a diversity. And by the way, this is all from my perception as a white kid in 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 Oakland public schools. So I don't know what it would look like from the outside in, but it did feel like in Oakland public schools. And I'm sure that the reverse is true when it's um when the when the demographic dynamic is reversed as it is in a lot of schools where there's like one person of color in a school full of white people then the white people are allowed diversity but the person of color is just the black Mm -hmm. right and that's their identity no but but wait i wanted to be a goth or i wanted to be a nerd or i wanted to be no 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 sorry and that's right that's sort of the, the the default dynamic of america right is whenever you uh, whenever you are a person of color, you are representative, and that person you are you are not allowed to be. As we discovered on the Champs, and that was one of the things that Questlove said about like what's cool about the Champs, the podcast I used to do, is that it be, it became this weird platform where there was like vulnerability and depression being discussed among these guests that were primarily guests of color. And uh, because the default positioning for people of color, for Black people, especially in in America, is you are just black and then everything else is invisible behind that f- that first layer of identity. Mm-hmm. So, at any rate, yeah, 
that's how it looked to me. It was like, oh, there's black nerds and there's there's gangsters and there's you know kids that do sports and there's like the smart person and the popular person and the hot girl and the good looking guy and the slick dude that can dance. And then if you're white, you're just a white boy. And if somebody right. said white boy, I would like you know neck or you know be like somebody call somebody somebody ring. Yeah. So basically, you were given the 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 blank, or you weren't given the blank slate. You were just categorized into one very uh, specific, and that was just white white boy now did that is that do you think that's partially why you gravitated towards black culture in that way is that you felt like you were you might be able to diversify your own like image more the way that i have thought of it in my my in my hindsight you know monocle uh, about what life was like back then i mean i really do think a lot of it is about the east bay at that time in history mm-hmm. and i think what's really weird and interesting is if anybody i could tell somebody's from the east bay usually within a few minutes of meeting them just because there's a very specific situation that uh, that occurred but um but i also think that like it really was less about racial dynamics i think it was less about racial dynamics and more about social dynamics with with black culture in Oakland in the 90s and the early 90s being, the, like I said, the primary culture at the school dance at our school dances. Like it was like silk and, you know, like spice one and like it was, you know, deep, deeply black situation and every the dancing that everybody did. There was nobody there was no nod given to anything other than like, I'm you know, we're we're like, you know, four one five in and like things that are like truly lost to the annals of history in terms of music yeah would be the whole thing and yeah. you know everybody was like you know freaking and like you know with with the chaperones there like it was a very very black situation mm-hmm. so i think that the social dynamics in oakland at that time just defaulted by virtue of of demographic sort of like just numbers that's why i think people gravitated why i gravitated towards in the first place yeah that was what was cool yeah so I want to go back to that a little bit later. But first, I want to sort of take what you've talked about so far and apply that to your new show. Sure. Uh, Problematic. If you could explain to listeners sort of where the concept for pro- Problematic came from and what are you trying to do and what are you hoping to accomplish? Because I know you are picking from a lot of very, just like race, very heavy topics. Yeah, sure. And you're try- you have to try to dissect these things and have an intelligent conversation about them in like a 30 actually like 21 minute yeah it's insane yeah and and it's like one of the beautiful things about this show is like or for me i mean i can't say how beautiful it will be for you but is that i'm trying i'm really trying to dive into these heady thick conversations and as a result of that in order for them to be given any like real you know honor and deference the tapings take the tapings take you know, an hour and a half or something. And then that has to get distilled back down to 22 minutes. So it makes for this very bizarre editing experience. So far, so good. I think what we've got, the product we've got is really good. But um, yeah, it's intense. And there's a lot of intent. If we talk about racial dynamics, our first episode was about cultural appropriation. That was our our, our swing out the gate. Black hair is one of the most sensitive topics that you can discuss oh under the cultural <laughs> appropriation <laughs> umbrella. And this is a picture of Kylie Jenner wearing dreads. <laughs> I got to give her credit. Like, this is the least offensive thing a Kardashian has ever done. (laughs) One of the things I want to accomplish with the show is, like, really giving over a diversity of perspective, whether or not I agree with that perspective. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what was very obvious to me at the time when it comes to discussing cultural appropriation, as a white dude 
it's not really my lane to be like, well, on the other hand, like to to too great of an extent. Right. Even though that's the stated premise of the show, I immediately just in physical reality realized like, okay, I got three guests of color. I got all these guests that I've invited. Like there's a Native American community leader. I got Kenya Barris, a creator of Blackish, who was my lead guest. And then mm-hmm. Aquafina and Ian Edwards were sort of representing my comedian panel. And then I had the Andrew T, who, the guy that does the Yo Is This Racist podcast yeah. and this d- dude from this Native. Any, at any rate, it became very clear like the one thing I was disappointed about and also realized like I could give myself a pass on is with these conversations I want to be able to do a little pushback Mm -hmm. and it's not per se the right zone for me to be like well don't you think guys that maybe this isn't as big an issue as you think it is when it comes to that so that was an interesting realization for me Um, and I think with cultural appropriation in particular I really did accomplish one of the stated goals which was to approach a topic that I feel I feel challenged by Personally, ideologically, intellectually, uh, probably maybe even, let's say, racially. Well, Ch- can you elaborate on that? Like what 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 do you find most challenging about that topic? I would, here's what I and you tell me when you think I go off your your intellectual track. What I realized about cultural appropriation, uh, there's a part of the most outer sedimentary layer of the cultural appropriation discussion that is eye rolly and difficult to engage with seriously, you know, mm-hmm. the, to talk about like no more yoga or o- the Oberlin College sushi, the absurd, and I don't want to, but the absurd outer exoskeleton of this conversation. The, extre- the extreme. The extremes. Very walking on eggshells. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I realized. I, would, I, I had a lot of profound realizations upon reading all this information, which was about, first of all, when the side that, and, and even me, when you think about the absurd parts of this conversation if that's all that you engage with well you're engaged in an argument with a caricature you're mm-hmm. not you're not taking seriously anything underneath you're not even giving an, a, a deference to the idea that there could be something underneath it yeah. all you do is roll your eyes at the kind of most extreme versions of it walk away you never have to truly engage with that concept right and so upon reading it i was like oh interesting um you know some people do in my opinion engage with with cultural appropriation conversation in a way that's a little bit extreme and absurd. But all of the serious thinkers that I read uh, on this topic, I didn't find one, um, for lack of a better term, like person on the woke side of the conversation. I didn't find one serious thinker saying, and here's the rule. White people don't do this. Mm-hmm. I didn't find anyone saying that. Here's the line, and you must not cross it. It is important never to never affect anything from black culture. Stop now. The lines are... Didn't find any of that. I found a lot of right-wing think pieces that were assailing the other side as if though that was the the stated request, right? That that's sense? like the that's the knee jerk reaction is like if you make a criticism or or you you point out this might not be okay, then it's really you saying you can't do that. Yeah, and that's not always the case. I mean, it happens, but that's like a very small sliver. Exactly. And so what I started to realize it was really interesting. Um, it is I started to realize like oh, it's really not about I it's not about incidents. It's about uh, precedence. It has much more to do with like Elvis Presley, you know, getting pulled over by the cops, uh, you know, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, like just a, a history of all of these indignities that is now crystallizing in this conversation around uh, appropriation. So my goal and I think what the episode actually accomplished, maybe we'll find out, is getting underneath the incident into the emotional reality of what of what really was was happening there and it's not really about rules it's really about 
con- uh, respect. With the whole cultural appropriation thing, I mean, I, I do. I think you are a very smart thinker on on race, and and you get those points of co- across very eloquently. How do you find like? How do you walk the fine line between being someone who talks about these things smartly and being perceived or feeling as though you are a white savior of some sort or mm. like someone who has to, uh, you know, s- who's speaking for black people to other white people? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it. That's a, you know. It's... No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm here. Let's do this. I just want to make sure that I answer that correctly. Um, you know, I think I am a savior. No, I, that's not the right word. Um, not the right answer. Um, I think I don't actually think of myself in a position of great racial deconstruction or mm-hmm. I, I never think of myself as like a thinker. Or a, I, there are things that I care about, things that I engage with personally. And do I do I find it diff- a head scratcher that people are like, you know, I'm not necessarily looking to the white community to figure out race relations for me. <laughs> not, not really. I get I get that position. It doesn't really. Yeah. But um so I, I I don't necessarily think of my any no, I've never felt that anyone needed my my particular input. I just there are things that I care about and there are things that are important to me and I will talk about those things. That said, the champs, since uh, you know, we were gonna get there anyway. Yeah, let's the, just get to it. The champs had an uh, an interesting, weird, inherent issue, and we always knew it. And it, for those of you that don't know, the champs was a podcast that I did with Neil Brennan. Who was one? Who was the co-creator of the Chappelle Show? And I, who grew up in Oakland, these two guy, white men, straight white men, who had this weird affinity for, for lack of a better word, black stuff. And uh, so we decided, oh, okay, what's going on? When we started po- our podcast, we we're like, what should our theme be? What should our our way in be? And then what we realized was that podcasting was this inc- at the time incredibly white landscape. It was like. You know, especially comedy podcasts. I'm not exactly sure what was going on with podcasts that like this that were a little bit more substantive. But in the comedy world, it would be like the same 30 white improvisers and stand-up comedians that were kind of getting traded from podcast to podcast. So we were thinking, right. oh, you know, it would be cool. And I'm telling you, this is maybe this is from a place of like foolishness or maybe it's just from a place of like, you know, I don't know. We were like, oh, it would be cool if we just got black guests. That'd be what a funny idea that would be. Just these two white dudes interviewing black celebrities. Mm. And um so, you know, there's an inherent weird fraught problematics of that. It's, but, a, it's a little weird. But. Oh, it's <laughs> don't think it was missed on us. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean it, the, the inherent like exoticization mm-hmm. was nobody missed that. But we were like, uh, first of all, as comedians, I think both of us are like, also, who cares? Let's just have some fun conversations. Yeah. And uh, and so we just did. And we started the, the podcast and that was like our way in. And, and it ended up being this thing where the show became, I think, important or powerful. And there were some big conversations on there that now now we get into the white savior part. I, I actually think that it, I really do think that it diversified the, the reality of podcasting, especially comedy podcasting. All of a sudden I would notice these other podcasts, these popular other podcasts who had never really given much of a nod to diverse booking and stuff like that all of a sudden i would see like guests of our show start to pop to pop on the, these other shows and mm. then uh, the other thing that i thought was cool was like a lot of guests uh that were on the show who a lot of a lot of our guests the first time we would have them on would it would have been their first podcast that they'd ever been on mm. like oh that's interesting what is that oh what are you guys doing exactly and then a lot of those guests started shows of their own 
uh, that are currently running. I don't know if it's related or not related. I don't want to say that, but you guys started in what 2011, I think. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Right. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes, podcasts were still. I mean, they were going, but it was still very much like nascent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time we were done, like a bunch of our old guests had started their own podcast, and so. I definitely am. I feel melancholy when I think about it being not around anymore. Mm-hmm. I also kind of feel like, first of all, proud, and also like there's not that much of a need for it anymore. Like I think, like I don't know if there was a need that we get back to this fight, like white savior complex. But at yeah. the time, it was like nobody. It just wasn't happening. Whether it was weird or not, or exoticizing or not, or it was just wasn't occurring. Mm-hmm. And then we started doing our our show, and then you know, we I don't know, we did about five years or something of of shows. Yeah. By the time we were done, like there was tons of Diversity. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the most diverse community that exists, but there's a lot more diversity when we stopped than there was when we started. To that extent, I mean, I can't take credit for it, but I think we, I think we helped or something. <laughs> I feel like dances with wolves. Like, you know, I think we helped the Lakota Sioux. I mean, I don't know if I take credit for it, but I do feel like, you know, I, I was adopted. So. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we we see more diversity uh, within comedy podcasts and just within the podcast world in general, but. There was a lot going on over those five years. Sure. I listened to it. There were some episodes where I was like, mm, what's going on here? What, oh. How is this conversation going? <laughs> um, and I know you've talked about how like you and you just said, you know, you felt you worried about being becoming too fetishy, fetishizing. So in, in that in that regard, you know, how did you deal? What Like, was it worth it in the end to, you know, be perceived, I think, by some people as like this? These two white guys who could be seen as white saviors, or at, at the very least, could be seen as like you guys were their only hope—the <laughs> great white hope, <laughs> their only hope of getting into podcasting. Yeah, um, or just getting their that. comedy out there in general. Yeah. No, okay. So here's what I w- I want to say, and is that there there is a perception, and you can't help what people will perceive. You know what this concept of like intention is not the same as impact or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? So what I will say is like, we weren't, do all we were doing was like, let's start a funny podcast and it'd be funny and cool to interview a bunch of people that had never been interviewed before. Like there's this whole world of black celebrities that like just haven't been interviewed. And like so many of the, sh- of the people we interviewed, like no one had ever talked to them before. And like, what a cool thing to get. Like, so it was for, for, for our money it was never really about this. Like, Oh man, you know, what's going to be great is what we get. We're going to get into the black community. We're going to grab a bunch of, you know, these really dynamic black speakers and we're going to, we're going to, bring them into the mainstream that was zero of the conversation it was more like this would be a fun show to do yeah so that was the you know we're just comedians trying to have good conversations like is there an inherent weirdness about the format yeah and did we know that and lean into it on purpose of course yeah um in terms of what the outcome was or i don't even know if i can actually t- take credit for what the outcome was but in terms of like the the de facto reality now which is that a the podcasting landscape doesn't need two white dudes interviewing black dudes every week that's cool i think i feel good about the fact that there are there's more diversity in podcasting in general and you know i'd be lying if i said i don't have like a little bit of like you know pat myself on the back about it but I, you know then again I, I who knows if i deserve it <laughs> yeah i mean one of the things that I know, Neil, he had his theory uh, that he would posit. Dude. <laughs> yes. So here, here's the thing is that I noticed. So for listeners, the theory was essentially that 
Um, <laughs> all the successful black people that he knew <laughs> had. Uh, you got to really stick he. He that you got to scream. You got to do he through an echo that he knew that yeah. Neil knew uh, <laughs> were had experiences growing up like early in their lives as kids, teenagers uh, being around white people. And yeah. so he like basically suggested that like in order to become a mainstream success, you had to like have that experience of, of whiteness, which. You know, in some ways is is maybe true because that is that is kind of the way the world works. But I you always sort of push back against that <laughs> or at least felt slightly embarrassed about it. Like why? Like what what about that made you uncomfortable? I think the uh <laughs> I, well first of all Neil's brilliant and brilliant in a way that can be troubling. Um but I think that I'm always we, that was our position. It was always very funny. It was part of the the dynamic. Was that Neil was this like kind of like dude that would say whatever, and I was this like sensitive little woke boy that was like, please, okay, Neil, but uh, you know, you could always hear me kind of sweating on on yeah. the mic. But um, but I, I it made me the primary reason that that always made me uncomfortable is because while it's true that a black person growing up around other cultures is going to be better off for it, it's just it seems de facto reality that it's true in the opposite as well. Mm-hmm. That, But the conversation was never framed around like growing up around people that are different than you is good for one. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. He would always just ask the guests like, so did, <laughs> like, you, did you hang out with question. white people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Second question in. Um, but uh, but that – yeah, that is that is the reason. And, and you know, it became a running joke. Listen, the pro- the podcast was – for lack of a better term, problematic. And I think that was what was powerful about it, actually. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't take it back. I, I wouldn't uh, – I don't remember really getting all, basically any flack. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I there was a, a d- pronounced lack of flack that I remember reading online about – I don't remember ever getting dragged, like, who are these white dudes? Who do they think they are? Who who are they coming in with their white savior complex? That didn't wasn't a conversation that I remember, and I would have remembered because you know, as I said, I'm the one that's always sweating, making, hoping hoping nobody's angry. Well, I was just re-listening to one of your podcasts, and you did get some. You addressed it, um, mm-hmm. which was the fact that up to a certain point, you had not featured too ma- too many women on the show. Yeah, um, black women in particular. Sure. And you know, you you both you and Neil gave a few reasons. One of which was that you know you felt as though black women might not feel comfortable coming on the show to discuss in the way you guys banter. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. I, it's very important to me that we distinguish between things. By the way, here's the, the real unctuous problem of the champs. Neil and I also sound incredibly similar. You do. It's it's a hard time picking you. But I will say, I listened closely and you were both like, you know, you were both bantering back and forth. So it was a back and forth thing. Okay. Um, and you also said like you didn't really know any black women comedians. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm going to put no, you on no, the spot no. here. Put me on the spot. So, I just want to make sure I'm being put on the right spot. Yes. On, on my spot. Because <laughs> I don't remember thinking or believing that. I still don't believe that. Okay. Now, I don't. We did have a gender problem on the on the podcast. No yeah. doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, and I and and there were. It was. We did. One of the realities, and maybe this is just you know falls short of good enough but one of the realities of booking a show is that it's very very difficult to get guests period oh i i know i bet you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just like one of the most fraught realities and so yeah. what we realized also is once you put this caveat any caveat mm-hmm. 
it becomes, you know, exponentially more difficult. The caveat of just like limiting it to just black people, people. of color. Yeah, yeah exactly. Color, yeah. It, it, at first it was, you know, oh, black guests. And then it was like, okay, this isn't even that's not realistic. So right. it expanded out to like. You had Aziz people, on. We had Aziz. We had MC Search. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. We, we once in a while would break the barriers. But um, but we there were by the I guess what I'm getting at is I was spending lots of time emailing people all the time trying to get people on. I mean, I'm emailed every black female comedian that you could think of and only so many people were were willing to engage. And Neil knows the people that he knows and, uh, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not trying to let myself off the hook here. I'm just saying the realities are also dictated like, I, you know, the amount, I mean, we had some more. She was coming and then she, we, I don't know what happened. She disappeared. Yeah. Uh, Cheryl Underwood, I, try, I, I, I was cold emailing Whoopi you know, I was yeah. like, I was going for it, and uh, it was not easy. That said, I think we could have done a better job mm-hmm. of getting more women of color on the show. I, I do believe that. I think that's a legit criticism. One, like, just a quick bounce off of that, like, how, if, like, if you were to, if you're still doing the show now, how would you do it better in terms of trying to do that outreach? Um, it's very difficult. There are dynamics of every partnership that are very difficult for me to like. Mm-hmm. Give over to you know I, what would I personally have done differently? Yeah, you. I I guess I. It's a difficult. It's a hard question for me to answer. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I I I want to say I would have tried harder, uh, but I don't quite know what that trying harder would have looked like. Mm-hmm. But I do hear when you ask me that question, I do notice myself wincing and going like, I should, we should have done better. Mm-hmm. We could have done better. Uh, but we did we, we, where where we did and we, we, as we could could we had people uh, we had women on but it was not um for me it was always uh, a a thing that i was concerned with and trying for that i had more concern than i had ability to get guests in yeah i mean one of my favorite episodes was the one with tiffany haddish who's so, now on um it's a wild the, episode. the carmichael show that was a but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, when you're talking with comedians in general, and especially black comedians, but like comedians in general, there's always some sort of trauma background story to uncover there. But with Tiffany and with a lot of the women you mm-hmm. spoke with on the show, there's a lot of trauma there that was hard to swallow. But at the same time, there's humor to be had. I mean, how was it like, wh- what does that feel like to kind of like take that in? I mean, Tiffany's that episode... I feel like almost emotional just like thinking about it because it was so it was so intense. She and talked about abuse. Deep abuse. Um wasn't she kidnapped or something? It was she, like the most savage shit I've ever heard in my life. And yeah. like the way that she spoke to it with this kind of like she cried a lot of times and yet somehow the show was funny the weirdly yeah. was able to like dip back into being funny and um, I it was seriously an an unforgettable for me experience talking to her because it was just like it was so deep and so profound. What was it like for me to hear it? Is like I just felt um because Tiffany's my friend. I just felt like a d- deep amount of compassion, and I just felt felt and also admiration. Mm-hmm. I was like, damn, you are this like powerful because she's such a powerful performer and like. Also, as we are, we are starting to see slowly, like a phenomenal actress, oh, like, yeah. just like scene stealing every moment that she's on on stage. Like, 
and all with light. You're a, a comedian, so it means you have at least some joy in your life or, and also some pain. That's the only time nice, I'm happy You're on a nice stage. person, too, to me. And not to Neil. You run the light. You made that weird joke about the Chappelle show. But, like, you've always been very sweet to me. You're, I mean, you're I'm going to tell you why the reason is that I've run the lights from time to time. And it's because it's, it and it's mostly happens when I'm at my lowest, like when I'm feeling like I should just be dead, like when I feel like I don't deserve to be on this earth. And I go on that stage and it's like the safest place on earth for me. She just emanates this sort of light and she comes from these insanely like dark and traumatic places. I was really like I was, I was yeah, I would say I was simultaneously like in awe of the experience of the conversation uh, filled with a lot of like compassion and mostly reverence. Yeah. I mean, so do you have any particular guests or episodes where you felt as though you may have crossed a line like in that moment uh, or you felt like it was kind of going in a kind of crazy direction? I I, I want to say yes, but the answer is no. I, I don't I don't have anything coming to mind that made other than the overarching feeling of like, is this cool? Yeah, yeah. Which is definitely was a conversation. There was no moment where I felt like, oh, I've gone too far. Because I don't, I mean, I really think that our primary thing was just like, let's have conversations with interesting people. And then the format itself, which might have been problematic, by the time we were 30 episodes in, we weren't even thinking about it anymore. It was just yeah. like, let's, oh, cool. We got, who do we get? Big Daddy Kane? Great. Let's have a conversation with him. Yeah. Um. The other thing I was going to say, if we're telling people to go check out old episodes, is uh, since Charlie Murphy just passed away, right. the Charlie Murphy episode is just what I like a lot about podcasting. I'm now realizing now that I'm getting older and people are dying because we've had now two guests pass away who are who is the other one? Q, the world star guy. Oh, right. Which I, I don't necessarily need people to go back and reminisce on. But uh, yeah. but Charlie, if you want to get a sense of what a insane like colorful weird storyteller he was especially with him and neil going back and forth it's just a cool episode of like oh well, the brilliance of that guy's mind charlie murphy just had these crazy weird twists and turns of storytelling and uh anyway podcasting is, has this quality of being a uh permanent time capsule an archive of of conversations so regardless of how if you hate the concept of the champs to, if you want to know what Charlie Murphy was like, I think that's a good place, too. Yeah. So I ask all of my guests at the end of each of our conversations um, the same question, which is, when is the last time you saw something in film, TV, and you felt as though you were represented on screen? Uh, get Out when I saw that family, the white family. Mm. That was me. No, um, no, that's not true. Uh, I, I, I was wondering if you were going to say Moonlight because everyone's been saying Moonlight. Oh, is that right? Last, yes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Get Out's a good one, though. When's the last time? No, I did not see myself in Get Out at all. <laughs> <laughs> I saw myself in Get Out. Well, the funniest thing is, is the funniest thing. Well, by the way, watching Get Out, uh, you know, Chelsea and Jordan are, are dear friends. Yeah. And Chelsea's like, you know, one of my oldest friends. Mm. Uh, first of all, it's so funny watching her online have people ask her, is this about your family? And Chelsea always responds, yes, it was very painful for all of us to watch that <laughs> that documentary about our family. But um, watching Get Out, I think I, I felt, first of all, I had two strong feelings. I go, wow, I can't believe no one made this film already. And Wow, Jordan is the only person that could have made this film. Mm -hmm. And then I also felt there's a moment in that in that movie where, and maybe this is a kind of representation where you remember when she hits the the 
I don't want to spoil things. Uh, We're past that, aren't we? Well, I mean, I don't think that. At any rate, there's a moment where it becomes revealed that uh, everyone is the enemy. Mm. That I, it's uh, the second cup clink. Yes, right? the, hypno- the hypnotism. Yeah, when but when it's like revealed and she's like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't give you these. Yeah. That I got so angry in the theater. Mm. Uh, I got so upset. And uh because I just realized, like, I realized, like, anyway, for me, the movie is about, like, this feeling of being surrounded by the enemy, mm-hmm. you know, this, like, kind of weird underlying gut feeling fear that just, like, a lot of people of color walk through all the time. And that clink clink is, like, the ultimate revelation of, like, oh, yeah, no, everybody here's your enemy. Yeah. And I got so angry as a, as a white person. I was just like, ah, it made me in a good way, just like really, really upset in a way that I imagine. I actually don't know what a, what a black person watching that movie felt at that moment. But for me, I noticed this feeling of like, oh, this is so brutal. Mm-hmm. It was more than a horror movie by far at that point for me. It became about like my own interaction with like just the racial realities of this country that that was pretty powerful. I thought that was a pretty intense moment. Did you feel ashamed in any way or like just icky? Like- yeah, it would be hard to really articulate because I'm a white savior. It would be hard for me to articulate. <laughs> uh, no, I, it was something about like being a white person watching that moment yeah. and realizing the, the kind of hyper reality of like, you know, well, a black man walks through the world kind of in this weird like and yeah, I'm sure a black woman, too. Like, mm-hmm. but the, the, the person you're looking at is this black man walking around with this kind of like you imagine the feeling that you're surrounded by by the boogeyman. Yeah. That everybody you meet is a potential boogeyman that at any point could reveal himself or herself of like, oh, no, oh, you thought I was cool. No, no, no. I'm actually I'm like the deep evil boogeyman, you know, and yeah. that for sure there was something that I was feeling that was like as a white dude. It mm-hmm. wasn't as like a moviegoer or a guy that is in touch with my interaction with black culture or the co-host of the champs or yeah. anything else or, or a white savior for that matter. It was, oh, oh, I'm a white guy and this is, mm, we've all clinked a cup in our life. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Masha. It was wonderful having you on. Thank you. Did I do better than Paul Haggis? <laughs> oh, f- f- yes. <laughs> Good. Oh. Very, very much better than Paul Haggis. And thank you for not mentioning Moonlight. It's great. Yeah, you're welcome that I didn't mention Moonlight. But La La Land, now that would have been the f- that would have been the best answer. When was the last time you saw a representation of yourself in film and TV? La La Land, for sure, all the way through. Let me tell you one thing I will tell to all your listeners that I'm not going to let jazz die on the vine. No. Okay? It's on no. me to save it. Push John Legend out of the way. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah. And that's all for today. Thanks to Kristen for introducing myself and our listeners to the progressive nature of the great American baking show and to Moshe for the very lively conversation. Problematic airs on Tuesday nights on Comedy Central and previous episodes can also be found on the Comedy Central website. Share your thoughts on our Facebook page, Slate Represent, and make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcast if you haven't already. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Fairlyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Planoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And that music you're hearing right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.